Take your copy of God's Word and open it again to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9, as we start back into our, uh, our, our series, our time spent working through the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9, uh, when last we left Mark's Gospel, we were in verses 1 through 13, so today, find your way to Mark chapter 9, verse 14, verses 14 through 29 will be our text today. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that's under a seat in front of you, one of those black hardback Bibles, um, you'll find Mark uh, toward the back of the Bible. It's in the New Testament. I'm not exactly sure what page it's on. I failed to, to look ahead of time. Probably page 900 and something. That sounds about right. Uh, Mark's Gospel. The large numbers on the page are the chapter numbers. The small superscripted numbers are the uh, verse numbers. We're in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29 today. Uh, Michael Jordan. Greatest basketball player to have ever played the game. If you think it's LeBron, you're wrong. Michael Jordan. <laughs> Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. He lost in his professional career nearly 300 games. He missed 9,000 shots, 26 of those game-winning opportunities. James Dyson spent five years building 5,126 prototypes before he created the world's first bagless vacuum. Steve Jobs was fired from Apple, the company that he created. Charles Schultz, the creator of the comic strip Peanuts, had every single one of his illustrations that he submitted to his high school yearbook rejected. These stories of... And now and we know that, that the, these failures are not how these stories end. They always end with with success of some sort. These stories of success by way of failure are inspiring to us because they promise a, a breakthrough for those who press on through adversity, for those who don't listen to their critics, for those who, in the words of the great band Journey, don't stop believing. But these stories of success through failure offer relatively little help, maybe even no help, for the person who feels like they're failing or flailing, not in business or entrepreneurship, but failing spiritually. We're still, these stories of, of, uh, of promise of success through failure often promise the kinds of success that are, that, are that are very appealing to Christians and to churches, but kinds of success that are nowhere promised to us in His Word. When we fail as disciples of Jesus, or when we fail in our ministry as a church, what shall we do? Shall we just try harder? Shall we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and just give it another go? Do we seek new rounds of investment through venture capital groups? Do we just keep believing in ourselves? Or does failure in ministry and failure in discipleship, flailing about as we follow Jesus, does that kind of failure call us to do something different than these stories of other stories of success through failure? As we come back to Mark's gospel, Mark 9, verses 14 through 29, we see in this passage Jesus teaching through the, the healing of a demon-possessed boy uh, belonging to a desperate father that successful discipleship and ministry are impossible without faith. The main idea of our time in the text this morning is this, that failure in ministry, failure in discipleship, if we're flailing about as we seek to follow Jesus, this sort of failure and flailing always points to either a misplaced or a malnourished faith in Jesus. Failure in ministry, failure in discipleship is almost never related to not trying hard enough and almost always related to a misplaced or a malnourished faith in Jesus. 
When we fall short in following Jesus and carrying out the mission of the church and, and, and growing as disciples of Christ, we need to stop to evaluate the focus of our faith. We need to seek to shore up the smallness of our faith and pursue a more dependent and obedient relationship to Christ as we move forward from failure. Would you stand with me today as we honor God by reading His Word? Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. As Mark is writing this biography of Jesus, he continues saying, When they came to the disciples, they being Jesus and Peter, James, and John, who previously were on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. You may be seated. Failure in ministry, failure in discipleship almost always points to a misplaced or a malnourished faith. Our passage today follows right on the heels of the transfiguration of Jesus. There in the previous scene where we last left off in Mark chapter 9 verses 1 through 13, we saw several weeks ago that at the top of a mountain with his disciples, Peter, James, and John, just those three of the twelve, Jesus was transformed in his appearance, unveiled in all of his glory as he had with the Father before his incarnation. And that inner circle of disciples was there on the mountaintop with Jesus, dumbstruck by what they saw, Jesus there with Moses and Elijah and dumbstruck by what they heard uh, from a voice uh, in a glorious cloud saying to them, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So it was after that glorious revealing that Jesus and those three disciples go down the mountain and are reunited with the other nine disciples back in the nearby town. And it's into a conflict over a failed attempt to heal a boy from a demonic spirit that Jesus now enters in upon. This failure to cast out a demon, this failed exorcism, will set the stage for Jesus to teach an important lesson about failure and faith. We see three things evident to us in the text this morning. First of all, in verses 14 through 19, we see that we fail when our faith is misplaced. 
We fail when our faith is misplaced. When Jesus and the three disciples reunite with the other nine, they see two things happening. First, there's a great crowd. And these crowds always seem to follow Jesus. There's not much of a surprise there. But second, they see an argument between the nine disciples and some of the scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders of the day. Also something we're used to seeing around Jesus. When Jesus appears, he inquires as to the reason for their arguing. What are you grumbling about? And a man, the father of the, of, of the afflicted boy, the demon-possessed boy, speaks up to give an answer about what's going on. He says in verses 17 and 18, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whatever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they weren't able to. Now, in the description by the father of what's going on, there are some interesting observations to make here. First of all, the father brought the boy to Jesus. Did you catch that? Teacher, I brought my son to you. And in bringing the boy to Jesus or to the disciples because he knew Jesus would be there, the disciples take over the situation. Ah, we can handle this, no problem. Jesus isn't back yet, but we got it. And the disciples, we notice second, that though they had authority from Jesus to cast out demons given to them previously in Mark's gospel from Jesus, who had success in casting out demons before, could not do anything about this one. The scene before us in Mark 9 is of great interest to us because, because of the failure of the disciples to cast out this unclean spirit that's afflicting this boy. The disciples' failure to cast out this demon should catch our attention. It should make us go, what's going on here? Because we've seen them be successful before. In Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read that Jesus appointed the twelve whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Part of the reason that Jesus called the twelve together was to preach the gospel and heal the demon afflicted. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, we read that Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. In verses 12 and 13 of Mark chapter 6, we read that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They preached the gospel and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Previously, they'd been very successful in, in exercising demons from afflicted people. But in this present scenario, they fail miserably. Jesus responds to the news of their failure. Father says, I, I, I brought the Spirit to you. They tried to cast out, but they couldn't. They failed. Jesus responds to the news of their failure with a hard word for the disciples. He calls them a faithless generation. And he laments that they have been so long, that, that he has been so long with them, and they are still not believing as they ought, and that he may not have much time left to be with them. And when Jesus calls the disciples faithless, he is quite literally saying that they are without faith. They are lacking faith. This idea of how uh, of faith will now, we'll see it pervade uh, the rest of this scene. And because, uh, and, and it will be itself become the unifying theme of this scene in Jesus's life. This scene is all about not just failure, but also faith about belief. And the point here is this, the disciples have failed to cast out the demon because their faith was in all the wrong places. We fail when our faith is misplaced. It's important for us to remember that the authority that the disciples had over demons, their authority was derivative. It came from someone else. It wasn't their own. It came to them from another authority. Their authority over unclean spirits was not inherent to themselves, but it was a, an authority that was dependent upon Jesus. 
He's the one who has all authority over unclean spirits. It's before Jesus that we've seen demons falling down and crying out and begging not to be cast out of their human hosts. It is the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus that the disciples have been given and the authority of Jesus that they exercise when they cast out demons. It's not their own authority. It's Jesus' authority delegated to them, on loan to them in some respect, but still dependent upon Him. Their present failure in this scene to exercise this demon is notable because of their previous great success. But between their first successes and this present moment, something seems to have changed. And Jesus says that it is their faithlessness. I think it's helpful at this point to ask the question, so then what is faith? If we fail when faith is misplaced, if the disciples are, a, are faithless in this moment, it helps us to define what it is that we mean when we say faith. Or better yet, what is it that they don't presently have? If they are faithless, what are they missing? This concept of faith is most plainly a matter of dependence. And not just in this part of the, the Bible, not just in Mark's gospel, but all throughout. Faith is always a matter of dependence. Faith is not merely, in the biblical sense, faith is not merely belief in something or belief in someone. Faith is a matter of being convinced of the ability and the dependability of a person. That's what faith is. It would appear in this case that the disciples, for all their success in previous exorcisms, have come to trust in their own ability to exorcise demons and have misplaced their faith. They take over the lead. This father brings this boy to Jesus to be healed. And they're thinking, oh, Jesus isn't here yet, but we've done this before. No big deal. Demon, come out of him. And it doesn't. They fail miserably. Remember, their authority to cast out demons is Jesus' authority to cast out demons. That has been delegated in some sense to them. When they cast out demons before, earlier in Mark's gospel, it was with confidence in Christ's power over the demonic that, that, that initiated and affected the exorcism. It wasn't anything in themselves. It wasn't because Thomas or Thaddeus or... The other Judas was particularly powerful in doing so. It's because Christ gave them authority and they're depending on Christ's power and authority to do this work. Here, Jesus says that they don't have any of that anymore. They are faithless in the sense that they have misplaced their confidence. They, they've taken their confidence away from Jesus and placed it in themselves. And now they've failed all over themselves. We fail when our faith is misplaced. What are we meant to learn from this scene? Well, first, our relationship to Christ is one of faith, meant to be one of faith. Again, this is not mere belief in historic facts about Jesus, but a conviction and a dependence upon Jesus the person. A relationship with Jesus is not just saying, yes, I believe he, he lived and died and, and, and may have raised again. Faith in Jesus is saying, I'm depending upon Jesus the person, his work at the cross, his resurrection from the dead to do for me what I can never do for myself. I have no hope of salvation apart from Him. It's a recognition that, that without Jesus and His work on our behalf, that we have no forgiveness of sin. Faith is recognizing that apart from Jesus, we have no reconciliation to God and no hope for the kind of life that He offers both now and in eternity. Faith is, the, is not just the belief of the facts of Jesus' life. It's the exercise of reminding ourselves that if we're able to be saved from sin, Jesus must do that saving for us. And then calling out to, to, uh, calling out to him to do just that. Jesus, I believe only you can save me, so save me. I'm depending on you. Second, 
as Christians and as the church, not, not only is our relationship to Christ one of faith, but the life that we live and the ministry that we do, we do with dependence upon Jesus and eyes on Him. There are many odd and unbiblical definitions of ministry success in the world. Many of them, at least in our modern Western culture, revolve around crowd size and revenue and social influence. If you have a big church with a big budget and a strong reputation in your city, well, then you've got a successful church, right? Well, just as Jesus gave the twelve a commission to preach the gospel, to heal the sick and cast out demons, he's also given the church from its first days in Acts until now a commission to make disciples in his name to baptize new believers, to teach them to obey his commands, to proclaim the gospel in truth, and to serve one another in ways that lead to the unity and the purity of the church. It's interesting when we look at the commands that Jesus gave to his people, almost none of them have to do with crowd size, revenue, and social influence, and everything to do with dependence on Christ and obedience to what he's called us to do. Even if there's a great crowd at a church, But these commands of Christ to preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey Jesus, if these things are not present, if they're not being fulfilled, we cannot say that we're being a successful church. Even this morning, friends, there's a fairly good crowd here. We're we're mostly full this morning. But, But butts in seats, pardon my language, does not equate to success, right? Biblically speaking. Sheer size, uh... On the other hand, excuse me, a a church may have a great crowd that is growing in evangelistic zeal and effectiveness and deepening their discipleship and, and proclaiming the word and serving one another and serving the world. And just because they are a big church doing these things doesn't disqualify the great biblical success that they are having. So when it comes to crowd size, crowd size says virtually nothing about whether a church is being faithful and obedient and successful in a biblical way. When we struggle and feel as though we're failing as a church or failing as disciples of Jesus, irrespective of how many people are here, we need to get our eyes on the right person, which is not ourselves, not our own efforts, but on Christ. The disciples' problem, their failure came because their eyes were not on Christ. Their dependence was not on Him. They thought they could do just well enough on their own. And we need to repent of all confidence that we've placed in ourselves to build successful churches and ministries and all confidence that we've placed in ourselves to be fruitful disciples. And we need to depend on Christ again. When you fail in discipleship, when you fail in ministry, what's your first response? Is it to analyze the choices you've made, to replay a scenario over and again in your mind, looking for weaknesses in your strategy or plan to avoid discernible mistakes in the future? Or when you fail in discipleship and you fail in ministry, is your response to repent of faithlessness? This is not to say that our lack of faith, our lack of dependence or confidence in Christ is what keeps us from succeeding in our plans, but often it's the lack of dependence upon God that leads us to create bad plans in the first place. Consider Jesus' words in the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. He says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Instead, often we find ourselves praying in church things like, God, this is what we want to do. These are the plans that we have made to be successful. Would you please bless them? But Jesus teaches us not to pray that. Jesus teaches us to pray with all dependence on God, for God's will to be done, for God's kingdom to come, and not for God simply to bless our plans, but for God to guide and shape and direct our plans as we make them. We fail when our faith is misplaced. 
But as the scene goes on, we find that we also fail or flail when our faith is incomplete. Verses 20 through 27 of Mark 9 show us this. After these words to the disciples, you faithless generation, how long do I have to be, how long am I to be with you? Jesus calls the father of the boy to bring his demon-afflicted son to him. And when the spirit sees Jesus, this unclean spirit does what demons always do when they see Jesus, totally flips out, tormenting the boy with seizures and convulsions. And in the middle of this, Jesus compassionately asks the diagnostic question, how long has this been happening to him? And the father tells him, as long as the, the boy was a small child. So it seems a long time he's been dealing with this. Now, at this point, you may be reading the symptoms described in Mark chapter 9 here of this boy and be thinking, this sounds just like a lot like epilepsy to me, not like demon possession. But Mark and Matthew and Luke, the other two gospel writers who also record the same event in Jesus' life, all of these three gospel writers are certain to indicate that this is not a medical problem. This is a spiritual oppression problem. Moreover, the father's description of the intentionally destructive nature of the demon's fits, always trying to burn and drown the child, indicate that there's a malevolent and harmful impulse behind the boy's condition. This isn't just epilepsy. This is something far worse. The symptoms do sound like epilepsy, but Mark is clear to say that this is uh, an incident of demonic oppression. And even Jesus, who does heal medical problems in many places, Jesus doesn't deal with this as a medical problem. He deals with it as a spiritual problem. He speaks to the demon and does not touch the boy. It uh, uh, does not heal by touching the boy as he does in other places where there's a, a medical problem like blindness or leprosy. And when we come to things like this in the Bible, it's helpful for us to avoid assuming that all accounts of demonic possession are really just misdiagnosed mental disorders. Like saying, oh, the people who lived 2,000 years ago, they didn't know as much then as we know today about the human mind and the brain and how it works and, and when it doesn't work. And, and they just didn't know that this was, was really just epilepsy, that it could be treated with uh, medical interventions. We do really poorly when we assume that people who lived 2,000 years ago were just not as smart as us. Sometimes these things really are demonically influenced. And at the same time, we also need to understand that not every mental or neurological order today is the result of demonic oppression. So the the warning goes both ways. Just because someone may be diagnosed with a mental illness does not mean that that the psychiatrists are wrong and what they really have is a spiritual problem. It may be that they do have a, a mental illness that does need to be treated. So we need to be compassionate. We need to be wise in these matters and not assume that we know everything and not assume that, that other people don't know anything. But getting back to the point of the text, after explaining the boy's history, the father pleads with Jesus saying, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. The father's request sounds a lot like the leper in Mark chapter 1 verse 40, who said to Jesus, came to Jesus with his, his skin disease and said, if you will, you can make me clean. For the leper, the leper believed that Jesus could heal him. It was just a matter of whether Jesus would heal him. If you will, you can make me clean. For this father of this demon-possessed boy, the question is not about if Jesus would heal the boy. The question is if Jesus could. There is in the father a failure to believe that, that Jesus even can do anything about this. If you can, have compassion on us and help us. To the father's request, Jesus shoots back a, quick, if you can, 
He, he literally, he repeats the words back to the Father. If you can. Do you, do you hear what you just said? So as to say, what do you mean if you can? Do you not believe I'm able? And he adds, all things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible for the one having faith. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is not saying that if we just believe, like in some vague, abstract way, that we can manifest whatever results we want. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's New Age spiritualism. That's New Age manifestation. Think positive thoughts. Like attracts like. If you have a dream, visualize it. Believe that it is so, and it will be so. That's not what Jesus is saying. All that New Age spiritualism, all that New Age manifestation business is all nonsense. And that is not what Jesus means at all when he says all things are possible for the one who believes. Again, in the Bible, faith, belief, is a confidence and dependence upon the ability and dependability of God. And, and that God is able and trustworthy to do whatever we, and, excuse me, and, and it's not a faith that God is able and trustworthy to, to do whatever we want him to do but that he is faithful and able and trustworthy to do whatever he wills to do or has promised to do. Anything that God wills, anything that God promises is possible for the one who is confident in and depending on God to do that very thing. And so faith, or a lack of it, is right back at the center of this passage. The disciples are faithless. They have no faith. The Father is, is of a sort of sort of insufficient faith, incomplete faith, a lacking faith. The father lacks faith that Jesus has the capacity to do anything about his son's affliction. If you can, will you help? But the father gives us also this beautiful example of a prayer for the one who's struggling with their faith. He says to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. When our faith is incomplete like this father, not misplaced, but when it's lacking in confidence or lacking in dependence upon God to do all that God wills and all that God desires or has promised to do, we may feel like we're failing or flailing as disciples of Jesus. But this Father shows us a wonderful way to combat a lack of faith, and that is to admit it to God and ask for His help. I believe, help my unbelief. Friend, are you like the person who says, and maybe this is, these are literally the words you would say this morning, I really struggle to believe, to, to trust Christ, to depend on Him. It isn't that I don't have faith in Christ. It's just really hard to believe right now. Now, if this is the case for you, I hope you take heart from the Father in this passage because He struggled to believe that Jesus could heal His Son. All the same, His simple prayer is effective. And Jesus answers His prayer. When the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief, He's asking Jesus to fill out His faith, to strengthen His faith, to counter His disbelief with the gift of more dependence on Christ. And the great news about this Father's prayer to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, is that Jesus answers. He heals His Son in a way that is meant to add to the Father's faith, to undergird the Father's meager, puny, failing faith, and to strengthen it. Friends, when we lack faith, we can expect to fail in seeing God's will done in our lives and in our church, simply because we doubt His capacity to do so. I don't even know if God can save that person. I don't even know if God can help these people grow as disciples of Jesus. I don't even know if, if, if God wants us to be a church. But through this dad and this scene in Jesus's life, Jesus invites us to say to him, Lord, I believe, but my faith is pretty puny right now. 
I believe, but I'm just barely hanging on. I trust that you're able and I trust that you're dependable, but man, is it ever difficult to trust right now. I believe, Lord, but not like I want to. I believe, but like a candle flame that's just about to go out. I believe. Help my unbelief. And what's more, Jesus demonstrates that he's glad to answer this prayer. He does for this dad precisely what Jesus himself wills to do, to continue his binding of Satan and plundering Satan's domain. And in freeing this boy from this demonic spirit, he answers the dad's prayer to help his unbelief. He shows this dad, not, not, only, am I, not only can I heal your son, but I want to, and I delight in it, and I'll do it because it'll help your faith. Now, in all this, we should not miss a very clear foreshadowing to Jesus' own resurrection in the near future in Mark's biography. In verse 27, after the boy is healed, he appears as though dead. the, The spirit in leaving him convulses him terribly, and he's there lying like a corpse, and some people literally think he's dead. Mark tells us that he takes the boy's hand, and he lifts him up and raises him. Now, the language that Mark uses is very similar to resurrection language. We could, we could read it literally something like, he raised him up and he was resurrected. Jesus raised him up and the boy was resurrected. Now, the boy is not clearly dead, but it looked like he was dead to everyone who was present there. But in the way that Mark describes this event, he is foreshadowing the power of God to raise his own son, Jesus, from the dead. Friend, if you believe, but you need help with your unbelief, cry out to and look to Christ who himself has demonstrated his ability to conquer death and who in his resurrection has proven his dependability to overcome death and sin in your life when you call on him in faith. We fail when our faith is misplaced and we fail when our faith is incomplete. We have two calls already from scripture. One, Get our eyes on the right place. Get our confidence in the right person, Jesus, not in ourselves. And two, when we struggle in faith, ask Christ for help. I believe, help my unbelief. But third, in the last two verses of this passage today, when Jesus and his disciples retreat back in private, we learn that we fail, not just when our faith is misplaced or incomplete, but we fail when we do not pray. In this scene, in the last two verses, we get the diagnosis to the disciples' failure to cast out the demon on their own. Privately, they leave the scene, go into the house where they're staying, and the disciples ask Jesus, why could we not cast out this demon? We did it before. We failed today. Now, their question to Jesus, why could we not cast it out, reveals two things to us. First, they have come to think too highly of themselves. They've come to think that exorcism was done in their power. Why could we not cast it out? And second... We learn that they're still into the dark is why they failed, as to why they failed. And Jesus, in his short reply to them, reminds them of the importance of faith, of the importance of dependence on Christ to do what only he can do. Jesus says this kind, speaking of this kind of demon, apparently some are harder to exercise than others. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, if you're reading from the King James Version, you may have another little phrase added at the end there, and fasting. Uh, that, that little phrase, you probably have a footnote that'll take you to the bottom of the page. It says, some manuscripts do not include and fasting. Uh, or if, you're, if you don't have that phrase, you probably have a, same, a footnote that tells you the same thing. Um, the Bible, as it was uh, being passed around and uh, in its earliest days, there were not photocopies, so you had people that were handwriting um, 
uh, or hand copying passages or books of Scripture and passing them on to other parts, uh, other, other Christians, other parts of the world. And in so doing, sometimes a copyist, a, a, a scribe, might add an, an, a further explanation to a text if he thought it was going to be confusing to someone, uh, or might add something that, that speaks to maybe the common life of the church in the day. And, and it wasn't, these aren't like malicious additions in copying, uh, but there's probably not the words that Mark wrote. So someone somewhere along the line also recognized that prayer and fasting together had a lot to do with the life of the church in its earliest days. And they're like, well, prayer is good. And most of the time when we pray, we're also fasting. So I'm just right and fasting too. So those are probably not Mark's words, a later copyist's words, but nevertheless, Jesus says, this kind is not driven out, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now for Jesus, he in this scene does not pray before casting out this demon. Did you notice that? He didn't stop to pray before casting out this demon. But we do see Jesus often in Mark's gospel going away to pray on his own in private. Jesus is in no ways a prayerless person. He is a prayerful person. Jesus rarely prays before exercising demons. Most of the time when we see him do this, he just speaks and the demons obey. Now Jesus is, we remember, he's God in human flesh. Demons have no option but to obey. But the disciples, remember, do not have authority in themselves to cast out demons. Only the authority that's been given to them by Christ. Only authority that depends on the power of Christ. So why does Jesus tell them that they failed because they didn't pray? Well, he doesn't, he, he, why doesn't he tell them, you failed because you didn't have enough faith. You need to believe more. Why does he say you failed because you didn't pray? That's because, again, faith is not just mere belief. Faith is the condition of our relationship to God. Faith is what our, our relationship to God rests on and is facilitated by. It, it is, faith is the expression of our conviction that God is able to do His will and the expression of our dependence upon Him to do His will in this world. So why prayer? Because prayer is inherently relational. Prayer is how we speak with the God in whom we depend. Prayer is, is the way by which we bring God our concerns, communicating to Him. It is in prayer that we confess our sins and unbelief and ask for His help. It's by prayer that we express our dependence on God and our confidence that He's able to do what we cannot. We fail when we do not pray. Why? Because our prayerfulness is some indication of our faithfulness. The degree to which we pray in dependent confidence on God is, is in some way related to the degree to which we actually trust that God can do the things that we ask. If you find yourself asking as you're seeking to follow Jesus, you find yourself asking about yourself, I, I'm doing all the right things as a Christian. I'm going to church, I'm giving, I'm in a small group, I'm in a grow group. I'm meeting with this person for discipleship. I'm, I think I'm praying regularly. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm doing all the right things as a Christian, but nothing's changing. Nothing's moving forward. I feel ineffective. I feel stuck. I want to ask you, how is your faith? And as a, as a further diagnostic question, how is your praying? If our ministry as a church, friends, is utterly prayerless, if we are not a praying church, we ought not expect to see much of anything resembling godly success. Because the degree to which we are prayerful says a lot about the degree to which we are faithful and trusting. 
It's in part why we spend a whole Sunday mornings a couple times a year focusing on faith, or excuse me, focusing on prayer. It's, it's why we took all last Sunday morning to focus on, on prayer and praying and asking God to do things for us specifically because He has promised to do them in His Word or out of a, an aspect of his, his character or His nature because without prayer, we're, we, we're not in active, confident, faithful, dependent relationship with God. If our lives as disciples are lacking prayer, Christian, we cannot expect to grow in Christian maturity and faith and confidence in Christ. If we're prayerless men, we cannot expect to see much of any of God's power in our marriages and families and friendships. Student, if you are prayerless, do not be surprised to find yourself overwhelmed by every temptation and force of the world that seeks to tear you from your relationship to God by faith. Faith is the condition of our relationship to God. And prayer is the expression of our faith. It is the putting to words of our confidence in God and our need for His help. Why couldn't we cast it out? Because you're not praying. You're not expressing dependence upon me and upon the Father to do what only we can do. We fail when we do not pray. Now, the very good news of the gospel is not only that God saves those who call on Jesus as Lord in faith, saving them from sin and death. That's, that's the first part of good news of the gospel, but the good news of the gospel doesn't stop there. The good news of the gospel is that God saves people from sin to live in a relationship of ongoing dependence upon Him and confidence in Him to do His whole will in our lives. He saves us by faith, and He makes us to live with Him in faith. So friend, how's your faith today? Is it misplaced? If so... Set your eyes on Jesus. Reorient your focus and depend wholly on Him. Brother or sister, is your faith lacking? Is it incomplete? Does it feel puny? Confess that to God and ask Him to help your unbelief. I believe, but just barely. Help my unbelief. Are you failing and flailing about in faith because you are prayerless? Begin today to speak to God and to listen to Him. Prayer is not just saying all the things that we think to God. It's also stopping to listen to what He has to say to us. Begin praying to God today and listening to Him in confident, dependent prayer. Failure in discipleship, falling short in ministry, struggling in our walk with Jesus is almost always an indication of either a misplaced or a malnourished faith. So let us get our eyes on the right person. Let us get our confidence in the right person. Let us ask Him for help when we struggle to believe. And let's depend on Him in prayer. Because Christ has died for sins and been raised again, we have confidence to know that all who call on Him in faith, as Lord, trusting Him with their lives, have confidence in knowing that they are saved, made right with God and justified to Him by Christ's, uh, by Christ's substitutionary and sacrificial death for us.